Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Brett Porter to talk about MIDI 2.0. First of all, the age-old question, does creativity decline with age? Scientists have wanted to know this for a long time, with the first study actually occurring in 1835. Now, of course, scientists really want to know this because it affects when they're at their peak as well. So this is what all the studies have pretty much found. Your creative output increases in your mid-20s, and it climaxes in your late 30s, maybe early 40s. Then there's a slow decline with about half the productivity that you had at your peak at age 80. Now, there are some exceptions. Poets and mathematicians, for instance, peak very early and then have a very sharp decline. Historians and philosophers peak late with a very gradual decline. But what they found that was most interesting, I think, is the fact that your career age is different than your chronological age. So, for instance, if you have an early bloomer, their peak is going to be shifted forward. Now, that means if you're a prodigy in school, for instance, a prodigy piano player or a prodigy at anything while you're young, your peak is probably going to be shifted much more forward than some of your contemporaries that peak a little later. But the characteristics that researchers have found is that creativity is all about focus, patience, and work ethic and a little bit of being able to think differently than anyone else. Now, if you think about it, the older you get, you get jaded about many things, especially the things that you know and the things that you've learned in the past. That affects the way you think and your ability to think outside the box. Another thing is what was once radical when you were young may not be so much as you age. And then, of course, family priorities frequently get in the way, where now we have a lot less focus, a lot less patience, and the way we work has changed significantly. But what they found is, if you really want to increase your productivity, regardless of your age right now, there's a couple of things that you can do. The first thing is, don't obsess over perfection, because it can get you stuck. You're better off in having something imperfect and getting it out there. Now, tech companies have found this to be true, and their mantra is, just get it out the door and we'll fix it later. And to some degree, that's not a bad way to go about things. Another thing is, don't abandon your creativity and what you think is right or feel is right for whatever happens to be the new shiny thing. And of course, we see artists do this all the time. They change their music to kind of fit the trend, and that never works. Because usually by the time you develop something, the trend has passed. And finally, don't let self-doubt get in the way. Because many times that will actually stop you in your tracks and you'll never get started. So these are just some of the things to think about when it comes to creativity. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of losing it. Because we can always get it back if we work at it. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks, 
PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources forward slash free hyphen resources. Now, I was reading something about Google's latest foray into AI. And one of the interesting things that they came up with is something they called autocomplete. And what this will do is it will automatically fill in the blanks on a conversation or a video conversation. So we all know what happens when you're doing a Skype or a Zoom conference call. And I'm sure we've all had this happen recently where you're doing something like this and all of a sudden there's a glitch and it falls out and you lose some words, you lose a sentence. Well, it turns out this new Google technology will actually figure out what this is supposed to be and fill in the blanks so it's seamless. That's kind of scary, but of course AI is being used more and more, especially when it comes to the music business. Streaming companies, for instance, use artificial intelligence to analyze listener preferences so they know what kind of music to feed you. The future of this might be biometric and physiology-based because what it can do will sense how you're feeling that day and give you music to complement that feeling. So many times what we do now is we'll just plug in sad music, happy music, whatever, and it knows enough to give us what we want at that point, but we have to feed it in. But what would happen if just from the biometric information that it gathers from us, it will do that automatically. So that got me thinking. Maybe there's some possibilities for this when it comes to our creativity in the studio. Now, what I'm going to mention here has nothing to do with products that I know of. These are just some things I'm thinking of where AI can be very helpful. One is vocal or instrument tuning. Now, yeah, we have Auto-Tune, we have Melodyne, which does a great job, but you have to manually go in and do the work. The auto part of it doesn't necessarily do the job if you're trying to do it well. But what would happen if AI can figure out, wait a second, this is the note that you really wanted to hit and put it in there and make it like that. This is the way you wanted to phrase something. Well, there it is. What if it used biometric information to determine that a singer was tired and needed to either take a break or maybe start again tomorrow. Producers are supposed to do this, but sometimes by the time you figure it out, it's way too late and you spend a lot of time that you could have spent other places. How about if AI figures out that a mixer is losing attention or maybe not hearing as well because you turn it up too loud because you're getting fatigued? How about acoustic measurement where AI can figure out exactly how to tune your room, what materials you should use in order to manually do it, and in what quantity, and then how to bring it up to spec afterwards. Now, of course, we're seeing bits and pieces of all these things, but I think we're not seeing it to its fruition. But that being said, things are moving very quickly in the artificial intelligence world, so don't be surprised if you see these things very soon. My guest today is Brett Porter, who's one of the lead engineers in the development of the MIDI 2.0 spec. Brett has a big background in electronic music, but he's also developed software products for the Pro Audio, Broadcast, 
and musical instrument industries as part of the Art and Logic development team. As we all know, musicians have been connecting electronic music gear together using MIDI since 1983, but it hasn't really been updated since then. The new MIDI 2.0 spec brings everything into the 21st century, making MIDI faster and more expressive, but also adding some new concepts and acronyms that we'll all need to learn. As a member of the group that developed MIDI 2.0, Brett is one of the first people to start building MIDI 2.0 software. As a composer who's used MIDI since the 80s, Brett is also well-suited to show musicians what they'll need to know when the new gear starts entering the market. During the interview, we spoke about how Brett got into coding, why it took 35 years to get to MIDI 2.0, the advantages of MIDI 2.0, a look at future musical instrument technologies, and much more. I spoke with Brett via phone from his office in Los Angeles. I know that you have a big background in electronic music, computer music, and I'm curious as to how you went from there into coding. Yeah, that's an interesting story. You know, I went to music school back in the 80s. And, you know, you go in as a young kid and you think you're going to be the, a famous composer before you learn that there's really not such a thing anymore. Um, so I, I stuck around for my master's after I got a bachelor's in composition. And I was at the University of Miami back in the 80s. And they had a uh, program that was combination, composition, electronic computer music, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but University of Miami has a really killer music engineering program, Yeah, and I was able to sneak into uh, a bunch of those classes as well, and for that degree program, I had to learn to write code in C language to, to do some digital synthesis and digital filtering stuff, and you know, kind of my dad's ever never-ending amazement, I picked up a marketable skill in music school. <laughs> You know, so uh, you, you got done with the masters and kind of fell into first into the broadcast electronics world um, where I was doing some equipment for mostly in the FM and TV audio industries. And uh, about 23 years ago, fell in with my current employer, which is a company called Art and Logic, which does custom software and originally came out of the music instrument industry. Um, old timers might remember there was a company in the 80s called Hybrid Arts. Oh, sure that did digital workstation software on the Atari 1040 ST, which is why they're no longer in business, I guess. <laughs> but uh, when Hybrid Arts went out of business, three of the developers from there, you know, kind of clung together and started this company, Art & Logic, uh, which was originally designed to service mostly the MI and Pro Audio world, but, you know, in the 28 years since then, has uh, kind of blown out into all kinds of software development in general. Is what you do there mostly entertainment-based? Um, well, at one point that might have been true. I think the company-wide, it's a mix of where, where the company tends to thrive are weird projects that other development companies say, we don't know how to do that. So we do a lot of things that interact in odd ways or unusual ways with hardware, especially custom and weird hardware that people build. Um, which is why it's always been interesting to me because, you know, the, the music instrument industry is kind of that on its own. What are some of the projects that you've worked on? Well, within the, the music instrument world, um, I think maybe the biggest one back in the early 2000s, Roland used to sell a line of virtual studio, uh, BS, they, they called them, which is basically a, a DAW in a box. I don't know if you remember those. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, so, you know, plug mics in, it's got a CD burner. 
And as you know, the 2000s were beginning and DAWs were really starting to, to take over, they realized that the, they, there was only going to be so much market life for a product that, at that point, to be honest, you couldn't run auto-tune inside of. <laughs> so I, I spent some time in Japan with the Roland engineers and worked with them to develop the software development kit so that Antares and Sound Toys and Cakewalk and a couple other companies were able to port their plugins to run inside of the Roland VSN. Okay. So that was kind of fun because it got you know in, into the manufacturing side over in Japan. It got me a little bit into the plug-in side here in the U.S. and in Europe. And as a result of that, we've done a lot more things. So, so still working with, I've done quite a few projects for Cakewalk um, back in the early mid 2000s when they were when Cakewalk was still you know a commercial entity. Uh, we're trying to break into a lot of film and TV scoring things, so we did a lot of integration work, bringing QuickTime inside of uh, at that point it was still called Sonar, I think, and uh, done some work for Universal Audio, done some work for Massenburg Design Works, which was really uh, mind-bending. Mm, yeah, all great stuff, definitely. Let's get to uh, MIDI 2.0. Sure. First of all, why did it take 35 years to get to version 2.0? Because everything's done by committee. Uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, the, the joke I make is that, you know, MIDI was first demoed at NAM in 83 in January. And I think probably by April, people were complaining about it already. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of stuff was, you know, has been burbling under the surface. I think all the manufacturers, everybody involved has been hearing the same complaints for, uh, you know, 37 years or whatever. And my understanding is, this is before my involvement with that, but it was actually 15 years ago that they started a working group to start looking at modernizing MIDI. And it, it went through a couple of fits and starts, and there are a lot of big players that have to be on the same page before any motion can be made in that, that area. Mm. You know, and it's not just you know, the American companies that run, you know, they're organizing the MIDI Manufacturers Association. There's also a parallel organization in Japan and the consensus has to be reached not just within, you know, ostensibly the MMA, who appear to be the people that are responsible for organizing what MIDI means, but without consensus and buy-in from the Japanese manufacturers as well, uh, nothing's going to happen. So I think it took a long time for all the pieces both to fall into place, you know, politically and logistically for everybody to agree this is the thing to build. And I think also a big part of it is just the, the cell phone supply chain has made it so much less expensive to build small, high-performance, you know, modern hardware. So the idea that now it's time, it makes sense to, to come into a world where 31 and a quarter K bits a second is no longer your limiting factor. Or you know, you're not running on you know, 8051 chips from you know, the early 80s. I used to teach MIDI back when I was teaching. I'd have MIDI classes. Mm -hmm. And it was deep. And you needed to have some sort of knowledge in order to make it work, at least on a, a slightly more complex level. And then it got to the point where it was pretty transparent. So I'm wondering if we're going the other direction now, whether it's getting deep again with 2.0. I think the answer is yes and no. Uh, I, th I think that to the, if you're an implementer, you know, if you're an engineer who's going to sit down with this, there's a lot of complexity in the standards. The, the expressive capabilities that are added with some of the new protocol messages and things like that 
are, are not going to be really trivial to implement and work with. But on the other hand, a huge amount of the effort in getting this new spec going uh, is uh, – let's back up a little bit. MIDI 2.0, one of the big things that it brings to the table, MIDI 1 was strictly a one-way broadcast medium, really. You know, you plug the MIDI cable into your DX7, you hit middle C, and your DX7 has no idea if there's anybody on the other end listening to it, let alone whether they may play to middle C. Uh, so one of the things that MIDI 2 brings with it is it doesn't work unless it's a two-way communication. So what that allows us to do, there are layers built into MIDI 2.0 where uh, one of the big things is what they call MIDI CI, capability inquiry. So your MIDI 2 you know, keyboard powers up, reaches out across its cable and says, is there anybody there? And the first thing that, if there is, the first thing those two devices do is say, who are you? What do you know how to do? Mm -hmm. So, you know, talking about the complexity of setup and getting anything running, you know, 20 years ago, if you went to the store and bought a new printer, it'd be an all afternoon thing to get your printer talking to your computer. Whereas now you plug it in on USB and everything just works. And a lot of that complexity is going to be hidden through those kind of under-the-hood negotiation processes that are defined. Mm, got it. So we're going to be able to do things like, you know, another part of it is the definition of profiles. So if you have a keyboard controller that's got, you know, the Hammond drawbars, nine drawbars on it. Part of the problem right now, the reason it's so difficult to use some of these things is there's no standard. You, you, in fact, Yamaha makes multiple drawbar controllers and they all use different MIDI controller numbers to do the exact same thing. So with MIDI 2.0 profiles, your keyboard will be able to talk to a rack mount synth and it bring up an organ patch and they'll say to each other, do you understand the organ profile? And if they do, they both switch to it. The controllers map automatically. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, it's going to bring us a lot more towards this you know, plug-and-play future where you know, there's no reason for things not to be. We have the ability to build those kind of smarts into everything in the equation. Okay, what are some of the other advantages of 2.0? Well, I mean, obviously, 37 years ago, sensor technology was comparatively primitive. So uh, any of the controller data, for instance, velocity and all of the other controllers in maybe one, they have a resolution of just 128 steps, so from 0 to 127 or, or 7 bits. Whereas now, you know, sensor technology advance, has advanced so much in the last 40-ish you know, years that it's economically feasible to start building controllers that have a much higher resolution data. And correspondingly, the MIDI 2.0 protocol messages are large enough now that we can carry 32 bits worth of data for every controller on, on your system. So instead of having 0 to 127, and when you move the knob fast, you can hear zipper noise as the controllers change, you know, it's, it's 0 to 4 billion is the resolution effectively on a MIDI 2.0 device. Wow. So it's not analog, but it's going to give you analog-ish quality you know, from, from those kind of sensors. There's also a timing improvement, right? Well, that, that's also the interesting thing, and, and there's some back compatibility stuff to talk about with that, too. But like you say, MIDI 1, there was no concept of time anywhere in the system. You pushed a key over here, and it went over the wire, and if you pushed 10 keys down with 10 fingers, they had to go out in, in sequence. So there was going to be you know, sloppiness in timing just because of the, the fact that the notes don't arrive at the synth at the same time. 
And under MIDI 2.0, it's optional to prepend every message with a very high resolution timestamp. So that means you, you connect your, your MIDI 2.0 keyboard to a DAW, start playing, and it's going to attach a timestamp to every note event that goes out. So even if those notes don't arrive at the DAW at the same time, it's going to, because of that timestamp, be able to reassemble them so that they're recorded at the time they're actually pressed. Mm, that's cool. And the, the cool thing is within MIDI 2.0, it's even possible to take MIDI 1 data. So if you've got, for instance, a manufacturer has a, a keyboard or a synth or something that they feel doesn't benefit from having the higher resolution messages, they can still send MIDI 1.0 data within the MIDI 2 data stream and attach a timestamp to it. Wow. So even if you don't take advantage of any of the enhanced resolution, we can make MIDI 1 better than it was. Very cool. Wow. What does it take to implement? There's a bunch of different answers to that question. So from a, a, a man, hardware manufacturer standpoint, you're going to need a your relatively modern CPU running inside of your device, which, let's be serious, most modern devices do. Uh, it, it's very uncommon to still be using you know, an underpowered CPU from this. So it's a matter of sitting down with the new spec documents and at one level, implementing the code that makes these new messages that are, are traveling over the wire work. Um, beyond that, there's some actually stopgap things between here and there that are preventing us from making this happen today. Uh, for, right, for instance, right now, there's no transport defined. Uh, we're working with the USB interface forum, which is the group that's responsible for defining what goes into USB so that we'll be able to transport new MIDI 2.0 messages over USB. So that's something that's kind of blocking us. We, we know it's going to happen. We don't know the exact date that they're going to give the approval on that. Uh, but that's kind of blocking things right now. By the same token, once that happens, you know, USB manufacturers are going to have to update their device drivers so that they understand that, that these messages are legit within USB. And then companies like Apple and Microsoft are going to have to build on top of that so that application developers like myself can sit down and start writing MIDI 2.0 compliant software. Okay. So you're saying it's more software implementation rather than hardware. I think at this point, well, I'm a software guy, so that's the way I look at the world, I guess. <laughs> um, there, there are obviously going to be other aspects to, uh, to this that I, I'm happy to have happen on the other side of the wall someplace. But like I said before, with high resolution sensors being part of the equation, somebody's going to have to go in and start building high-resolution keybeds and, and building you know, synth controllers that have knobs that are going to be encoded at a higher resolution than 127 steps. Are you saying that there's no MIDI 2.0 hardware on the market right now? Well, kind of. Uh, Roland has announced a keyboard that they're calling MIDI 2.0 Ready. And I talked to them a little bit at NAM and wasn't able to get a very solid picture of what that meant, whether that means that there's going to need to be a firmware update in order to make that work, or whether it's just waiting for other MIDI 2.0 gear to enter the marketplace before it does anything. But no, as of today, you know, February 2020, you can't go down to you know, your local retailer and buy anything that's actually working in MIDI 2.0. Okay. Brett, does it use the same MIDI connector that we've been used to? No, probably not. And that's the, the, usually the first question people ask. The 5-pin the DIN, I expect to wither. 
maybe 1.0 gear is probably going to continue to use it forever. But we're already starting to see a lot of, of keyboards and devices like that where the MIDI implementation is not going over the 510. It's going over USB. Yeah. In fact, I think that's common enough that I, I frequently run into people who try to tell me that they don't use MIDI because they use USB. And they don't understand that it's actually MIDI data just being carried on a, a different connector. Yeah, I haven't seen anything with an actual MIDI connector for a long time. I'm sure they're, they're there. I haven't noticed it, maybe because I'm not looking. But again, everything I've bought in the last, I don't know, 10 years, well, less than that, maybe five years anyway, that was MIDI-related is through USB. Right. And actually, the other thing that's kind of interesting with the rise of Eurorack in the last however many years that's been become a thing, um, there have been you know, modular synth manufacturers who would like to have MIDI, but they literally don't have physical space to do the 510 in. So a few years ago, the MIDI Manufacturers Association standardized on an 8-inch TRS implementation uh, for MIDI. So when space is at a premium, you can still do it just on an 8-inch jack. That's a place I wanted to go with you, being an electronic musician, pretty much. What's your take on Eurorack? Is it something that you embrace personally? I love seeing it. I, I think that anything that gets more people making cool sounds is, is going to be a good thing. From a market standpoint, I, I'm not a business guy enough to know what's healthy and what's not. It seems like we may be in a weird bubble right now, but on the other hand, I hope not. I hope that there are a lot of cool, weird little companies making things that just magically work together like your Iraq really does. It, it's a, a very different way of thinking about the world, you know, building things out of those little pieces. And obviously, you know, being a, having gone to music school in the 80s, huge modular synths are what I learned on. So it's very comforting to me to go back to that world. You know, it's funny, the last five or so NAMM shows that I've been to, Eurorack has increased their floor space larger and larger and larger every time. Mm-hmm. And it went from down in, in Hall E, where all the experimenters are, to, you know, the main floor now. And now it's taking up a lot of space. So someone is buying it, becoming more popular. It'd be very cool. I think the one downfall that I saw was the interconnectivity of it, unless you're on that same rack. But now with MIDI on on an eighth-inch jack, as you say, that's brilliant. That's great. Right, and there are, you know, I can think off, well, offhand, I I know there are more, but the two that I know of off the top of my head, Media Overkill um, has a Eurorack version of their WaveRaiser plugin, which supports it. And also uh, Percussa, which is a company that's doing this really cool digital Eurorack system, um, is also supporting it. So where do you see it going, MIDI 2.0? Well, I mean, I'd like to see, I mean, and again, I'm going to speak selfishly rather than as somebody that's getting paid to do this. I want to see cool new instruments. I want to see the one thing that MIDI 2.0 brings to, to the table that really was not common uh, more than a few years ago are the idea of having per note control data. Whereas, you know, in on a MIDI one device, you, you hold down some keys and you've got a pitch bend, that pitch bend affects everything that's playing on the on the channel. Or if you, you tweak the mod wheel, the mod, whatever that mod control is, affects everything on the channel. With MIDI two, there's this whole new family of per note messages. So you can be doing like what the MPE, MIDI Polyphonic Expression, like the Rolly Seaboard or Linstrument or several of those other things that allow you to do you know, individual control of each note even more so. 
you know, it lets you do it with the full 32-bit resolution of MIDI 2 data messages. Uh, with a multi-touch controller, you can bend individual notes depending on where you have them placed on the control surface. There's a lot of newly expressive kinds of instruments that because there's now a media to carry that data over to a synth, it allows inventors to bring those devices into existence that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Was the spec already completed when you got involved? It was no, actually, it was not complete when I got involved. We were brought in about two years ago, and by the time I was first started going to meetings, there were two different proposed specs. Uh, there was a spec that was called MIDI plus plus, and then a different one that was called MIDI EX. And basically the job that the committee was doing when I got involved and and watched, got to follow along as it proceeded was coming to compromise between the two, in in some ways, not compatible ideas that gradually became compatible and made sense as a unified new MIDI 2. When I first got involved, the the mistake that I made was referring it to MIDI 2 before anybody was ready to start using it. Like, no, you can't call it that yet. Let's not get, because it was very much a deliberate process of making sure that the compromise could be reached and that the eventual product of that compromise was something worth taking to the, the community of manufacturers as a whole and saying, we think we got this guys. Was it developed out of the uh, criticisms of MIDI 1.0 or was this more or less from the ground up as much as you can, you know, still maintaining that spec? Looking towards the future, I know that must be difficult because if you don't know what the future is, it's hard to actually build for it. So how was that approached? Right. Well, I think a couple different things. One of the big guidelines that there was in the development of this was that backwards compatibility with MIDI 1 was paramount. You know, we, the, the goal was not to have anybody need to throw anything away. It would have been really easy to come up with something awesome and cool starting with a blank page. Uh, but that was definitely not the, the starting point from any of the, the working groups that worked on, on the new MIDI 2 stuff. So how do you take MIDI and make it more MIDI? And that was really the approach that was taken. And how do you, like you say, you can't see the future. How do you build in adaptability and flexibility so that when somebody defines something new, it can fit into the standard without breaking anything? And I think that the, the, between the, the mechanisms for capability inquiry that we talked about, being able to say, what do you know how to do? And if two devices know how to do something in 10 years that doesn't exist today, they have a mechanism that's already defined for the, the, to agree that they know about that thing and agree to use it. Well, yes, but in order to implement something like that, would it have to go before the whole committee and be approved again? Um, actually, yes and no. You, you can choose to do that if you want something to become available industry-wide, but almost all of these things, for, for instance, with profiles and some of the other you know, high-resolution messages, they're very explicit within standard, a way for a manufacturer to say, my device is going to define this extension. I'm going to document it so you can use it, but I don't have to do anything more to, to make that happen. I can just follow these set of rules for how it needs to expose itself through capability inquiry and, and through property exchange, but I don't have to do anything to get approval to do that. Okay. As long as I'm within the general bounds of how MIDI 2 works. 
Was there anything left out that you wish was included? There were some some small things that I think maybe as a a matter of compromise between the two standards that were proposed that if I'd been the guy doing the, you know the final tiebreaker vote it might might have gone the other way uh you know jamming some more control data into messages here and there but very low level stuff I think at a high level medium level I'm I'm very happy with with what's come out of this I think that there's going to be another 37 years of life out of this this is ultimately pretty transparent to the end user, though, right? That's the goal. The, the goal is that, again, it should feel like MIDI, but just better and more and, and more expressive. And if people can't use the new capabilities, because in order to do that, you've got to sit down with a 100-page manual and dig through you know, 40 pages of LCD menus on a, a rack mount synth, I think things have failed. Yeah, right. So I, I think very much the goal is to not have it be like that. How many channels are there? Well, this is a cool thing because uh, MIDI 2 adds the idea of a channel group. So on any individual cable, you know, whatever that cable is, if it's USB or whatever we're going to be using in a year, um, there are 16 groups and each of those groups has 16 traditional MIDI channels inside it. So effectively we've gone from 16 to 256 on a single wire. Uh, yeah, but the group kind of makes it easier to get your arms around. It, it does. You're not. You're thinking in smaller chunks, and th- there are things that it really acts like 16 cables. So there are things that are common to the entire group in the same way that right now, if you have a single MIDI cable with 16 channels on it, there are things that are common to that cable. So each one of those groups functions kind of as an independent entity within your MIDI system. When do you see this being implemented industry-wide? I'd love to see some products being shown at NAMM next year. I don't know if that's too aggressive to start seeing more than a handful. Um, right now, there's, like I say, the, the Roland keyboard that's been announced. I don't know when that was supposed to ship. In uh, Europe, one of my colleagues on the, the protocol working group, uh, Florian Bomer, has a company called Bohm Software that makes these really cool little MIDI translator devices that get used kind of widely for niche applications within, within the world. And he's already got the MIDI 2.0 code ready to roll, as far as I understand, in his boxes. Mm-hmm. And it, the reason that my company was brought in a couple years ago was the MMA wanted there to start being a prototyping operation before you know, anything was put to vote even. So I know that there are other companies that have been you know, secretly, proto- or maybe even not so secretly prototyping MIDI 2.0 stuff, but they've not yet announced what their you know, actual market plans are. So um, I'm kind of as much in the dark as everybody else. I'm sure that this costs something to develop. Who put up the money for it? Well, the... Each of the companies that had representatives working on the protocol working groups was doing so at their, their own expense. So it's a, a volunteer organization that is, you know, anybody within the industry that's willing to pay, and it's not a huge expense to join the MMA, is, you know, welcome and encouraged to join and become part of the, the operation. Especially right now with MIDI 2.0, there's a lot of, supplemental follow-up work that's going to need to be done. Uh, you know, friends, we've talked a couple times about profiles. There's a large list of profiles that are obvious that need to be developed that somebody has to sit down and actually do that work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
anybody listening that, that's at a company that makes MIDI gear, please join the MMA. Yeah, I guess now it's getting the word out to everybody. It's been coming out slowly but surely, but now I think the deluge has to happen publicity-wise. It is, and I think that it's going to, as you say, it's going to be tied to people. Talk is cheap, you know, and if you've been in the music instrument industry for a while, you've gotten used to seeing amazing new announcements of things that are going to come real soon now that seem to never actually show up. <laughs> so it's, it's a matter of, uh, you know, having stuff actually hit the stores and, and hit the stages and have people start actually using it in, in anger, as it were. <laughs> okay, Britt. Big picture question for you. So from where you sit, what's changing in the MI business? Where do you see it going? Is there something technological that's happening that you see that maybe is not on the radar yet of the average user? For me, I, I think it's actually not even on the technical. Well, it is a technical thing. What I've seen, you know, I started working in, in this biz right around 1990. And what I saw when I first started going to AES conventions and NAMM shows, everything was very exciting and new. And then we reached this period in the early 2000s where everybody became so obsessed with retro gear and making ever slightly better replications of the same gear that was built 50 years earlier. And it was a very kind of homogenous industry for a while. There, there was not anything that you'd go to a show and say, wow, I'd never thought of something like that before. And I think now the cost and difficulty of developing new hardware means that there are a lot of these small companies kind of you know, springing up from the forest floor that have different ideas and they have a way to actually build them and get them out into people's hands. And I think that that's really what I'm seeing. You're seeing companies like Artifon, who's came kind of from out of no place and with a Kickstarter, we're able to raise huge amounts of money to build these cool little instruments that you know, didn't need you know, venture capital money to, to build, or they didn't need this huge factory to build because the mechanisms for you as a, a small company to get hardware made and shipped are something we know how to do now. Mm, yeah. So for me, that's it. I think there's going to be a lot more new ideas for a while. And maybe some of them will shake out and maybe there'll be dumb ideas. I don't know, but at least they're new. And people are going to have the opportunity in the market to say, is, is this something enough people will buy that's going to support itself? Yeah, I think I agree with you. My biggest complaint about most of the AES shows and NAM shows lately is the fact that there has been nothing new. It's been a regurgitation, evolution maybe of products, but nothing particularly new. This last one, this last NAM in January felt different though it felt like there was a lot of optimism and just a renewal of of some type even though i can't tell you that there was a major product shift but it just felt different to me i agree with you 100 percent. it felt different i noticed that companies that have been there for a long time it's always a good sign when companies are buying bigger booths yeah right you know, I think that's, that's a sign of health, right? You know, they, they've got the money to do that and they feel that, that it's worth investing in. So, but on the other hand, you know, my, talking about AES, the very first AES show that I remember going to, I remember the first thing walking into the exhibit hall and seeing just rows of cassette duplicating machines. And now I'm going back to AES 30 years later and the cassette duplicating machines are back. <laughs> so uh, maybe it's time to retire. I don't know. <laughs> Last question, Brett, and thanks for your time. I appreciate it. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? 
oh, the best business people that I've worked with have always operated from a, a point of generosity um, and working in a cooperative way. And it's amazing to me that you can put your efforts towards something that is not necessarily focused on your bottom line that comes around and improves it in the end because you weren't, you know, trying to rip somebody else off or work an angle. It just, I want to make the world better. Mm, And I've been lucky enough to work with companies that have worked with that ethos have made the world better and made their lives better as a result. You can find out more about Brett and art and logic at artandlogic.com. That's art, A-R-T and A-N-D logic, L-O-G-I-C art and logic, all one word.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.